Let us pray. Quiet in us, O Lord, any voice but your own, that hearing your word we might not fail to believe it, hear it, and heed it. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Our lesson from the Hebrew Bible this morning is found in the 24th chapter of Numbers, Numbers 24, verses 1 to 11. And the Lord said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and seventy of the elders of Israel, and worship far off. Moses alone shall come near to the Lord. But the others shall not come near, and the people shall not come up with him. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the ordinances. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words which the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses wrote all the words of the Lord. And he rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and twelve pillars according to the twelve tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins, and half of the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people, and they said, all that the Lord has spoken we will do, and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it upon the people and said, Behold the blood of the covenant which the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and seventy of the elders of Israel went up, and they saw the God of Israel. And there was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God, and ate, and drank. And our epistle lesson this morning is found in 1 Corinthians 11. 1 Corinthians 11, 23 to 26. St. Paul says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it. In remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. The Gospel lesson from Luke 15. Very brief, the first two verses of Luke 15. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes murmured, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. 
Thanks be to God for these readings from his own holy word. The Lord's Supper brings before us many diverse suppers featured in Scripture. It brings before us the Last Supper, family suppers, and not least the future final supper. At the Last Supper, Jesus poured out wine and said, No doubt solemnly, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Now our Hebrew ancestors knew that the word blood was shorthand for life given up sacrificially. Now, unlike our Hebrew ancestors, we creatures of modernity are fussy and fastidious. We think like things clean and neat, always in good taste. Our foreparents, on the other hand, weren't chiefly concerned with good taste. They were concerned with godliness. Not concerned in the first place to see something aesthetically polished, but preoccupied with knowing that their sin had been pardoned. Therefore, they didn't shrink from those vehicles of worship they knew that God had appointed, such as the sacrifice of the lamb in the temple. In the temple mystery of atonement, atonement means the making at one of sinful people and holy God, worshippers brought their best lamb to church. The priest cut the animal's throat, collected the blood in a basin, and threw the blood against the altar. A well-known popular New Testament commentator, more squeamish than he needs to be, and with more than a streak of anti-Judaism in him, I'm speaking now of everybody's friend, William Barclay. Barclay speaks of the repugnance of it all. Odor, flies, unsightliness, the slimy, slippery, filthy mess. He praises Jesus for having got us beyond this bloody primitivism. Alas, the man overlooks one thing. Jesus endorsed the bloody primitivism. Whenever Jesus was in Jerusalem at Passover, he worshipped at the temple too, with his lamb under his arm. Of course he knew what no one else knew. He knew that what the temple liturgy pointed to would soon be gathered up in his own poured out blood, since he knew himself the Lamb of God. Repugnant? Our Hebrew foreparents weren't sickened by gore and goo. They were sickened by their own depravity. They weren't jarred by a spectacle that lacked refinement. They were jarred by a spectacle that lacked righteousness, namely the spectacle of themselves in their systemic sinnership facing a just judge who couldn't be fooled and whose truth couldn't be fudged. Fastidiousness is the farthest thing from the mind of corrupt people whom the judge has condemned. According to apostolic testimony, our Lord at the Last Supper poured out wine and said, This is the new covenant in my blood. That is, it's the one covenant of God. There is only one covenant. It's the one covenant of God renewed by the blood of Christ. Why is blood attached to God's covenant or promise never to abandon us, never to forsake us, never to fail us, never to quit on us in anger or give up on us in disgust, even though our sin provokes God's anger and mobilizes God's disgust? Why is blood attached to God's covenant or promise not to let anything, not even humankind's outrageous insolence and ingratitude, cancel his bond with us? In short, if God wants to promise himself to us, why doesn't he simply declare it and spare himself the expense of his son? 
because everywhere in life where promises are made to people of perverse hearts, which is to say everywhere in life where promises are made, the same promises can be kept only at enormous cost. It costs nothing to make a promise, nothing to declare a promise. Talk is cheap. It costs everything to keep a promise. We promise not to forsake spouse or friend. The promise made costs nothing. But as soon as that person provides incontrovertible grounds for giving up on him, the same promise kept costs everything. God has promised forever to be God for us. In the Garden of Eden, his promise cost them nothing. But when humankind found itself in the far country, that is, when God's promise meets our disobedience and defiance, his promise kept still to be God for us wraps him in anguish. Then what mood pertains to the Last Supper aspect of our communion service? Surely a mood of solemnity, a mood of sober reflection, of realistic self-assessment, which is to say nothing less than a mood of sober penitence. But the Last Supper isn't the only aspect of our communion service. There's also what I've called the family supper aspect, the ordinary everyday meals that Jesus shared with people in the course of his public ministry. The written Gospels tell us on page after page that Jesus spent a great deal of his time eating. Why on earth did he spend so much time eating when there, so little was, when there was so little time allotted for his public ministry? Because he wanted his meal companions to know peace with God. In those days, to eat with someone was a public declaration of amnesty. To eat with someone meant that you harbored no enmity toward that person. You were plotting nothing malicious. You intended rather only that person's well-being and blessing. Now, a sign of amnesty in our culture, supposedly, is the handshake. Do you know why we shake hands with our right hand ever since medieval times? When we shake hand with our right hand, the person with whom we are shaking hands can see in a glance that our hand holds no weapon. Therefore, we aren't going to attack. Boy Scouts and Girl Guides shake with the left hand. Now, in the pre-firearm days of sword and spear, the left hand held one's shield. To shake hand with our left hand means that we've discarded our shield. We have renounced self-protection. What would it mean to shake hands with both hands? It could only mean that we had forsworn attacking somebody else and forsworn defending ourselves. It could only mean, in other words, that we were giving ourselves totally to another person without thought of attacking her or protecting ourselves. It could only mean that we were giving ourselves to her without reservation or condition or hesitation. Surely shaking hands with both hands is what we do, in effect, whenever we hug another human being. To hug someone, embrace someone, is simply to shake hands with both hands. Our affection, our concern, our heart's unarticulated welcome, it's all poured out on this other person at the same time as there is nothing held back to manipulate her or to armor plate ourselves. When Jesus ate with people in his everyday earthly ministry, he embraced them, both hands. 
he cherished those people and visited upon them that amnesty with God, which was nothing less than their salvation. They sponged it up with the heart hunger that every last one of us has. It sounds so wonderful that we can't imagine a downside to it. But there was. Our Lord's eating habits finally did him in. Those he ate with loved him, while those who refused to eat with him savaged him. We must never forget that Jesus uttered many of his parables in reply to those who faulted him for his table manners. We must never forget that his best-loved parables, Jesus spoke to those who were to savage him as they hissed, this man receives sinners and even eats with them. Nevertheless, our Lord never backed down. He knew that the provision in the cross was sufficient to grant people access to God, wouldn't of itself induce them to suspend their suspicion and abandon their assorted safe tree perches like Zacchaeus. He knew that because of the cross, sinners could approach the Holy One, but would they? Would they want to? Only if through the Holy One incarnate they found a welcome beyond anything they had found anywhere else. They found such a welcome in our Lord and they loved him for it. Then why did others attack him on account of his dinner companions? Because he broke down all the conventions by which they, his enemies, had ordered their lives. All the conventions by which they assigned themselves a superior place in the pecking order. All the conventions by which they credited themselves with a superior righteousness. Jesus eats with the immoral, and they know themselves cherished. He would gladly eat with the moral too, but moral people won't eat with him as long as he insists on eating with those whom the moral regard as inferior. Jesus eats with the dismissible, those deemed unimportant. He would gladly eat with the important, the successful, the powerful too, but they don't want to rub shoulders with the dismissible. Jesus eats with the irreligious. He would gladly eat with the religious too, but they can't stomach the thought that their religiosity, at which they've worked so hard for so long, he has just declared to be useless before God. Social convention and the reign of God are simply not the same. Then it's quite plain that either we cling to social conventions, assuming that the social order they point to is ultimate, or <clears throat> in the presence of Jesus Christ, we look beyond social convention to seize with both hands. It's John Calvin's expression. The one who has already embraced you and me. Either we regard social convention as ultimate or we abandon ourselves to the reign of God exemplified in a welcome we are never going to find anywhere else. It's not the case that Jesus exalts immorality above morality or failure above success or irreligion above religion, as some left-wing preachers want to tell us. It's rather the case that all such distinctions and categories and evaluations and pigeonholes, they're all eclipsed in that new creation in which righteousness dwells. Jesus welcomed his dinner companions to a new family, what Paul calls the household and family of God. 
Those who joined the family and ate at its table rejoiced and exulted in their newfound dinner companions. Not even the pouting and the petulance of those who wouldn't sit down with them could diminish their joy. The mood of exaltation, then, the mood of joy, is another mood that we should bring to the communion service. There's yet another aspect to the Lord's Supper, the anticipation of the Messianic banquet. There is a supper to come, a future supper that will also be the final supper that never ends. The the Messianic banquet will celebrate one glorious truth, the final destruction and dispersion of all that opposes God's reign and violates his rule and disputes his sovereignty. Now, Christians are convinced that Jesus is the Messiah, God's agent in restoring a creation warped, a creation disfigured, a creation significantly disabled and occasionally grotesque, a creation rendered all of this through the multi-tentacled grip of evil. At the same time, when the Messiah appears, he brings the messianic age with him. You can't have a Messiah without the Messianic age. Without the Messianic age, it is nothing less than absurd to speak of the Messiah himself. In the Messianic age, swords will be beaten into plowshares and spears into pruning hooks. War will no longer preoccupy us, even as poverty, disease, and exploitation no longer afflict us. Have swords been beaten into plowshares? Not only does war, terrorism is war by another name, not only does war rage throughout the world at all times, right now, at this moment, there are 50-5-0 civil wars raging in the world. Fellow citizens are slaying one another. Have poverty, disease, and corruption ceased to afflict us? Let's be sure to admit this much. Those who dispute the sovereignty of Jesus Christ have a point. They do have a case. Unquestionably, they have a case. Nevertheless, Christians may and must say this much. In the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, the messianic age has come upon us. Now, to be sure, it isn't yet fully manifest. If it were, it wouldn't be disputed. But it came upon the creation as the risen one triumphed over every principality and power, bent as they are on denying their defeat and molesting whomever they can with their last gasp. In his resurrection from the dead, our Lord has introduced the messianic age and guaranteed the creation of the, the healing of the creation's gaping wounds. When the messianic age is finally fully made manifest, every last evil that warps and wounds will disappear forever. Thinking pictorially as they were trained to do, the earliest Christians depicted this God-ordained event as a feast that never ends. At this feast, the bedraggled of the world, a bedraggled world itself, will shine forth resplendently as a creation restored, redounds to the glory of God, of the God who made it, who sustained it throughout its afflictions, and who wrested it out of the hands of the molester who had warped it. At the Messianic banquet, the future final supper, 
God's people will praise him everlastingly for a new heaven and earth in which righteousness dwells. Then the mood that we must bring to this aspect of Holy Communion is the mood of eager anticipation and steadfast confidence. The service of Holy Communion or the Lord's Supper gathers up three distinct but related meals. The Last Supper, where Jesus signed in his own blood the promise of God that there will always be more mercy in God than there is sin in you. The everyday meals our Lord ate with those whom he gathered into his household and family as he embraced and welcomed everybody who craved him and his rule more than they clung to social convention. The Messianic banquet, the future final supper, where all that contradicts the Messianic age is going to be dispersed definitively. The mood of the communion service should reflect all three aspects. Sober penitence. Unrestrained joy, confident anticipation. Today our Lord Jesus Christ invites you and me to his table. Soberly, let us renew our repentance in the wake of his astounding mercy. Joyfully, let us embrace once more him who always rejoices to embrace us. Confidently, let us anticipate that glorious day when all of us will behold the holy city, the new Jerusalem, the creation healed. For on that day, the former things will have passed away and there will be neither mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.